Um, I love that hymn, This Is My Father's World. It's uh, just a beautiful sentiment that obviously is, is true. It's not just sentimental. It is God's world. <laughs> he created it good. Everything about it was good, including human beings and our arrogance and sinfulness and lack of faith, as we'll talk about this morning, twisted us and our experience of living in the world and creation now fights against us and God's not going to cast aside the world that he's created. He's going to renew it and we will dwell one day on a new earth um, that is without sin and is returned to its pre-fall glory and actually even better than that in the future because of the work of Christ. So uh, I love that, that hymn a lot. Thank you, Kelly, for choosing to play that. It's, it's good. Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark 9. Happy Father's Day. In God's providence, this is a story a lot about a father this morning. We did not plan on that, but uh, that's where we end up. And as we'll get into this story, we're going to see that we're going to talk a lot about faith this morning. So I want to ask you, how important is faith to our lives as disciples, as followers of Christ? Remember, we're in a section of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him. And so the question for us this morning is, how important is faith to your life as a follower of Christ? Well, I think we would all say it's quite important. I mean, it's significant to our lives as a disciple. You cannot follow Christ without faith. It takes faith to pursue him. You pursue him because faith is acting and working in you. Scripture talks obviously a lot about faith. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God, two things must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To be a follower of God, of Christ, you have to believe that he exists, that he is there without seeing him, and you have to believe that he is good. You have to believe something about his character, the type of God that he is, and those two things come through faith. And so you can't be a disciple of Jesus. You can't be on this journey without faith, without trust in the person of Christ and in his words. So we're going to talk a lot about faith this morning, but here's the challenge when you talk about faith. And this is my concern coming into this, okay? When we talk about faith, our attention tends to turn from the object of faith to our faith, our experience of faith. And it's a subtle shift that happens and it changes the type of faith that you have. That's the danger of talking about faith and exercising faith and having faith. It's important and we need to talk about it, but we don't want to change our focus from the object of faith to our own experience. Let me show you an illustration of what I'm talking about. When you turn your gaze from the object to your own experience of something. How many of you have seen this picture? This is a picture at the royal wedding just a few weeks ago. I know probably most of you recorded that and watched the whole thing. But this is, uh, this is uh, the crowd at the royal wedding. I don't know exactly what moment, assuming it's when um, the royalty, the royal folks arrived or whatever. But you can see this lady right here. This is where I want to draw your attention, all right? Everyone else is looking at their smartphones and they're trying to capture this Instagram-worthy experience of 
being there, which, you know, is significant. It would be compelling to watch royalty come to the wedding and the, you know, parade of people come in. And yet there's this woman who is sitting there in the crowd and she doesn't have a smartphone out and she is focused on the wedding party and on the object. And I love the look on her face. I don't know if you can see it very well, but she's very serene. She's very happy. And she's just enjoying the moment. And it's because she's focused on the wedding party. She is not focused on her experience of being there. And how often do we all do this? Younger people more than older folks. (laughs) But we all do this, right? We try to capture an experience of a moment with our phone or through our phone rather than just enjoying the moment. And that's exactly what we do sometimes with faith. Rather than directing our attention toward the object of faith and toward keeping it focused there, we tend to think about our own experience. Do I have enough faith? Am I believing rightly? All of that rather than focusing on the object. And so I love this picture because I think it's a great illustration of what faith looks like. Faith forgets about self. It engages fully in the object of faith. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 21 is where we're going to be. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark, honestly. I love this story. Uh, It's told, it's beautifully told. The same story is in both Matthew and Luke, but it's told with far less detail. And so I love the way Mark explains this and gives you the the detail of what's going on. It's right on the heels of the transfiguration, and uh, so it's just a great setup here for this. And keep in mind, at the transfiguration, the disciples are told, remember, to listen to Jesus, to trust him and his words. And so here in this passage, we have some very clear teaching on faith and what it looks like to trust Jesus, to listen to his words, and then to obey them. And again, you can't walk as a disciple. Remember, we're talking about following Christ. You cannot walk as a disciple of Christ without faith in his person. Really, you can't live without faith. Even if you claim to be a non-believer, you're trusting in something this morning. So how much better to rely on the God of the universe and trust in him and his word. And so I hope you're here this morning with some level of faith that what God's word says is true to reality and beautifully important. So we're going to work through this this morning. We're going to see four lessons concerning faith that are necessary for followers of Christ. So pretty simple this morning, as we're on this journey of faith, faith is necessary to be a follower of Christ. And we're going to see four lessons concerning faith that are necessary for our journey of Of discipleship. And the first one of these, oddly enough, is that faith is abnormal. Faith is abnormal. And what I mean by that is that faith in Jesus does not come naturally to us in our sinful condition. Unfortunately, our gaze has been turned from Christ in faith, from God and relying on Him and trusting in Him to self. So let's get to this story here in verse 14. Verse 14, and when they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd gathered around them. So in verse 14, right on the heels of the transfiguration, you have Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. And as they're up there, maybe the thought entered your mind last time we were talking about the transfiguration. Maybe not, but maybe you thought, huh, I wonder what the other disciples are doing. Are they just like hanging out at the bottom of the mountain and waiting for Jesus and Peter, James, and John to come down. 
We find out very quickly what is happening to them. Jesus and Peter, James, and John come down the mountain and they see the disciples with a great crowd around them. And then look further in verse 14 and the scribes are arguing with them. And so they've had this majestic experience on the top of the mountain. Peter suggests that they build these booths to commemorate it. And they come down the mountain and they find a mess. It's like snapping back into reality very, very quickly for Jesus and the disciples. And when I think about this scene here to try to visualize what's happening here, I think about this time when it was on my first trip over to Nepal and we're driving in a SUV on these mountain roads, um, unlike anything I've ever experienced here in the U.S. They're very narrow mountain roads. There's a massive drop-off on one side, and then the mountains on the other side. You're right on the corner. And they're, they're narrow roads, but they go both ways. And there are buses, there are trucks, there are motorcycles. I mean, it's like pandemonium on these roads. And we came up to a turn, and there were people stopped in the road. And up ahead of us, we could see that a bus, which is quite large, takes up a good chunk of the road, had cut the corner on this turn too sharp, and a motorcycle had been trying to go the other way, and the guy had laid down his bike as to try to get out of the way of the bus. And he felt like the bus driver had cut the corner too sharp, which probably is a fair assessment of the situation, and his bike was damaged. And he was not very pleased about this. And so, of course, he was already off of his bike and he started yelling at the bus driver and other people are stopped in the road because you can't get by because the bus is blocking the road. So people get out of their cars and come over to see what's happening. And this crowd forms and people are taking sides. And I mean, it is absolute pandemonium. The crowd is growing. There are people everywhere. The motorcyclist is just screaming at the other guy. It's an argument taking place. More and more people are gathering. And, you know, you just wonder what's going to happen in this situation. Everyone's trying to figure it out on their own. I think that's kind of what's happening here. There's an argument taking place, everyone's shouting, everyone's arguing, more and more people are gathering around the disciples, and it is chaotic and pandemonium, and no one is really in charge. And so this is taking place, and I picture Jesus and the disciples coming down the mountain and maybe turning a corner and seeing this all unfolding in front of them and going, what in the world is going on? And then I think the crowd is there, and they're all kind of focused in, and probably what happened is one person in the crowd notices this group of four men coming toward them and realizes that one of these four men is Jesus. And they know about him. And so this guy turns and starts to head over toward Jesus quickly. And other people start to notice what's happening. And soon the whole crowd shifts and heads toward Jesus. Look at verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And so they come toward him. They're excited to see him. His reputation precedes him. Of course, they know about his power, his ability to do miracles. And so they're they're amazed that he happens to be there. And then look at verse 16. And Jesus asked them what he's asking the scribes specifically, what are you arguing about with them? Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you're maybe thinking this is just another story of the scribes arguing with the disciples about some Old Testament passage, about the interpretation of some Old Testament passage. But as Jesus asks the scribes this, someone from the crowd speaks up and interjects and gives us a picture of what's actually taking place in this chaotic scene. Look at verses 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, For he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. So this man maybe lives in the area near this mountain where the transfiguration took place, and he hears that Jesus and his disciples are nearby, and he knows about Jesus and knows his reputation. And so he had brought his son, hoping against hope, that perhaps Jesus would be able to deliver his son from the powers of darkness and from a life that has been enslaved to this demon. If you look at verse 18, this description is heartbreaking. You really enter into this and imagine what this would be like for this father to have his son and watch his son go through this. It seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. It sounds like a seizure, an epileptic seizure. If you're reading this just from a medical point of view, that may be how you would diagnose it. But it's quite clear as we go on in the passage, and even as he says here, this is caused by a demon, by the presence of a demon in his son. And so he's hoping to find Jesus, and he shows up, and he finds the B team here. Jesus is gone with Peter, James, and John, and he gets the rest of the nine disciples. And he asks them to do something, and they are unable to help at all. And so Jesus responds to this in verse 19. Look there. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, it's interesting here that he calls it them a faithless generation. I mean, the issue seems to be that the disciples lack the faith, the ability to be able to cast this demon out. So why does Jesus speak of an entire generation as being faithless? Well, I think what he's doing here is he's recognizing that this lack of faith is symptomatic of people everywhere. This is not the first time he has encountered faithlessness in people And here it just happens to be his disciples are the ones demonstrating it. We've seen this throughout the gospel of Mark. Remember back in Mark 6, Jesus goes to his hometown and it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Lack of faith. This is typical. This is normal for people. And yet at the same time, it's abnormal. Faith is abnormal. Why? Because God created us to be dependent on him and to trust him. He created us to walk with him in faith and to believe his word in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were supposed to live that way. They were supposed to base their lives on the word of God and live in faith and in communion with him. And so in that sense, trusting in him is abnormal because of the fall into sin. This is very typical of people now. And you can almost hear the frustrated tone in Jesus's voice here. I mean, he's done with this. He's tired of people turning in on themselves and trusting self rather than trusting in him as they were created to do. So what does Jesus do here? Look at the end of verse 19. Bring him to me. And that leads us to our second lesson. Faith is powerful. Faith is abnormal. It's not normal for fallen, sinful human beings to trust in Christ. It's typical of us to not trust him. And the second lesson that's necessary for us as followers of Christ is that faith is powerful. It's abnormal to have faith, this type of faith, but it's, it's powerful for those who do. 
And they brought the boy to him. And the demon knows exactly who is in front of him. Look at verse 20. They brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. You remember in the gospel of Mark earlier, when demons would come in contact with Jesus through their host, many times they would scream out. They would call him the most high God. They knew who they were dealing with. Well, this demon is a mute demon for whatever reason. He doesn't cry out, but he responds to Christ's presence by tormenting this boy, his victim, even further. So Jesus asks for clarification, and this just heightens the miracle that's about to happen and the power of faith here. Look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father's response is heartbreaking. The end of verse 21 into verse 22. And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I mean, sometimes you read these words and they're words on a page and they're simply stated and we sort of divorce them from the reality of the situation that is going on here and that has been going on for a very long time. I I hate to see my kids get hurt. And I know those of you that are parents or grandparents, you feel the same way. There's a feeling of helplessness when you hear your kid cry out and they're in the backyard or they're downstairs and they're screaming out and you know there's pain. You're wondering how bad it is. And there's a feeling of helplessness and you rush to them to try to be there for them, to try to help in whatever way you can. And this father has been watching his little son be tormented by this demon for years. This has been unfolding for him. And when you have children, there's great joy in watching them grow up. There's, there's joy in watching firsts, their first steps, their first words, their first time running, first time using more and more words, talking, the first time beginning to understand complex issues, and you, you have conversations with them on deeper and deeper subjects. And all of that experience has been taken from this father by the powers of darkness. He has not been able to have the normal experience of a father because of what has happened. We don't know how this happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. What, why would it, how would a demon take possession of a child like this? We don't know. We know that in some way demonic activity was more prevalent or was at least more noticeable during this time because the king of the universe was walking on the earth. So it seems like there's, there's, it's more prevalent, it's more noticeable during this time. We don't know what happened here, but the father begs Jesus for compassion at the end of verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So Jesus responds, and his response is instructive for us. There's a couple of parts to it. First, he sort of rebukes the father here. I mean, you can hear in the father's words, if you can do anything, and Jesus comes back at him and gives him sort of a mild rebuke here for even suggesting that he might not be able to overpower and to cast this demon out of the boy, to deliver the boy from this demon. Look at the beginning of verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can. It's almost like, if you can indeed. Okay, don't, don't doubt my power, my authority, my kingdom, and my ability to do this. And the man was probably hesitant. I mean, he just asked the disciples, who were some of the closest people to Jesus, to do this work, and they were unable to do it. 
And so he's probably hesitant, but Jesus mildly rebukes him to make it clear that this is not a contest. This is not even a question that I have the ability to do this. It's no problem for him. And then the second thing he says here is something we need to think about at the end of verse 23. We need to, to process through this. All things are possible for one who believes. So Jesus mildly rebukes him. And then he exhorts him to exercise faith because of the power of faith. Now, when he says this here, some people, or he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Some people take this to mean that if you can just believe strongly enough and claim something to be yours, that you will have it. That if the problem is your faith, and if you have enough faith, you can claim and have whatever you want. But if you think about that reasoning, that misses the entire point of faith because what does it do? It makes your wants the object. You're focused on what you want and your own desires. Faith is turned outward from self and is trusting in the person who it is directed toward, toward the object of faith. It's not about what I want, even if what I want is something really good, like having this child delivered from a demon. That's a good thing. But faith is not wrapped up in that. Faith is focused outward toward the object. And so to make this, this saying about whatever, getting whatever I want is to completely distort biblical faith. And it's to put self at the center. It means, this promise here means that faith connects us to the power and the heart of Almighty God. And it says, I will trust you and I will rely on you for whatever you want. Because I know that you are good and I know that you exist, as Hebrews 11 told us. I trust your purposes and your plans and you can do whatever you want because you are almighty God. So all things are possible as we rely on the work of Christ and trust in the Father to do his will. Faith becomes powerful because God works in and through people who trust him, who are dependent on him. Now, I already read from Hebrews chapter 11, but if you go back maybe this afternoon, sometime this week, and read Hebrews 11, which I'm sure you've done before, you read an entire chapter of the Bible about faith and about those who exercised faith. And over and over again in that passage, people who are commended for demonstrating faith often did not receive what they wanted in this life, did they? They got maybe the exact opposite in this life of what they wanted. Faith is not a means to prosperity toward getting all the riches that you want in this world. Hebrews 11 describes faith as directed toward God and toward his future kingdom. Think about Moses held up as an example of faith. There's quite a bit of Hebrews 11 about Moses, but listen to this description of Moses's faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be, this is faith, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He was focused on God and what God wanted, so faith empowered him. It made possible 
the ability to deal with mistreatment and to suffer persecution and to do the amazing things that he did because he trusted in God. That's what faith looks like. It's not like claiming that you need an airplane for your ministry and God will provide that for you. Or claiming that so-and-so needs to be healed immediately and God will do that. Faith says, God, it's your will, not my will. And you may have, and you do have all the reasons in the world for doing what you're doing. And I trust you for those reasons. And that's why faith is powerful. And I think that's what he's getting at in verse 23. All things are possible for the one who believes. Faith puts us in a position to trust and see the sovereign God of the universe work. And that's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And that brings us to our third lesson regarding faith. We've already talked about this a lot, but faith is fixated. It's abnormal. It's powerful because of the object, and it's fixated on the object. It's fixated on Jesus. Now, one of the reasons I love this story is because of the words of verse 24. I don't know if there is a clearer definition of faith than these words in verse 24. I love this cry, this prayer of the Father here. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The essence of faith here is turning from self and turning to Christ and fixing your eyes on him. He desires to believe. He knows that he is too weak on his own. He assesses himself rightly, and then he doesn't trust his own belief. He turns his gaze outward toward Christ and cries out to him and says, if you don't do this, I don't have enough faith. I can't figure this out on my own. It's all dependent on you. He turns to the object of faith, which is Jesus. One commentator said this, and I thought it was really, really helpful. True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. And that's the cry that he gives, help my unbelief. I can't do it. I need you to do this for me. And that is faith. There's several lessons we can learn from this that are very helpful for us. First of all, faith starts where you are and looks at Jesus. No matter how inadequate, no matter how weak, no matter how untrusting you are, it starts by saying, I am going to look to Jesus and then does that. It's not concerned with self. It's not concerned with ability. If you turn your attention to your level of faith and try to figure out if you have enough, you're no longer focused on the object of faith. And this is one of those things with assurance of salvation that I I try to tell people. When you're focused on your own faith and if you exercised enough faith when you prayed to receive Christ, when you came to Christ, if you're always concerned about that, you're no longer focused on the object. Turn your gaze outward to Christ. Trust his, the riches that he has. Rely on him. Look to him and say this prayer. Help my unbelief. If you don't do this for me, if you do not bring me to heaven by your grace, there's nothing I can do on my own. That is the cry of faith. And that's how assurance grows by turning our attention outward. 
But the man here, his cry is faith, I think, because it's addressed to Jesus. He looks to him. So faith starts where you are, looks to to Christ. Secondly, faith, biblical faith, is faith in a person. And you see that here. He's crying out to Jesus. He's looking to a person. It's a personal faith. So what does that mean, to exercise faith in a person? People say often, you hear people say, it's about a relationship with Jesus. It's a personal faith in him. But what, is, what does that mean? Why do we put the emphasis on faith in a person? Well, we tend sometimes to think of faith as trust or belief in a series of propositions or of statements. You know, we list different things that we say are true biblically, and we say, you, you need to believe these things. You need to assent to these things with your mind. And so you have statements like Jesus is God, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose from the grave. And we say, yes, those statements are true. And that is a part of faith, but that does not make up all of faith because it's faith in a person. And so we don't want to reduce Jesus to a series of statements or of propositions. What does it mean to trust in a person? What does it mean for me to trust my wife, Bethany? How did I come to that faith, that trust, that belief in her and her Words to me. How do I trust those things? How do I trust her as a person? Well, when faith is personal, when I have personal faith in Christ, it affects my whole being. It's not just my mind. It's my mind. It's my will, my desires, and it's my actions. Personal faith means it impacts all that you are as a human being made in the image of God. So, mind, will, actions. There are truths to be believed about Jesus. You can't claim to exercise faith in Jesus if you do not believe he is the Son of God, that he is fully God and fully man. Mark chapter 1 talks about the good news. There are propositions that we have to believe. There are things you have to acknowledge mentally and know, but faith is also about your will. It's about you being inclined to those truths. It's not just mentally checking a box. It's saying, I delight in these truths. I'm inclined toward them. I love them. I'm persuaded of these truths. I'm convicted of these truths. It enters into the level of my desires. So it's your mind, it's your will or your desires, and it's also your actions. When you truly trust a person, you will act on that trust, and it will change the way you live your life. You'll act out that conviction. When I was drawn to Bethany, I acted on that movement of my mind and my will. And I started to do things that were in line with my relationship with her. I came to trust her. I came to believe her words. I came to act on my relationship with her. And in some ways, it's very similar with Christ. I know things about him. I'm inclined toward his beauty and his person. And then I act out of that persuasion that he's good and that conviction that he is true. And I think that's what this man is doing here. He throws himself and his hopes for the future completely on the person of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus here. He says, if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. So I'm throwing myself on you. Can't do it on my own. The last thing about this here, this man's faith is that faith Our fixation on the object of faith. Faith is always a gift. It's always a gift. It's not something we work up on our own. 
This man cries out to Jesus for help. He acknowledges that Christ has to be the giver of all good things. He believes Jesus is a person that is able to give help and willing to give help. And so he trusts his character and he acts on that. So all faith looks toward Christ as the giver of good gifts. Look what happens when he exercises this faith. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This is a gift. He exercises faith, and it's a gift to him that Christ gives. We can trust him to give good gifts. Now, the difficulty here is this man trusts, and his desires come to fruition. His son is delivered from this demon. But this doesn't always happen. And here's where we need to think about this for us in everyday life. He trusts in the person of Christ, and trust in Christ's person says... Not I demand what I want, but I trust you to give me what I need. This man saw his son healed immediately, but we don't always see this work itself out in our lives, do we? We don't always get what we want, even if it's something good that we perceive as good. A child healed. A loved one coming to faith in Christ. A job that will better provide for our family. We don't always see those things and get them because we trust Christ. Faith is not some negotiating tactic with God to get what we want. Faith is looking to him, trusting in him and saying, you're both sovereign and good. And whatever you bring into my life, I will trust that is what I need. Even if that means I'll be uncomfortable for the next year, the next 10 years or longer. But faith says, I know, God, that you are loving and that you are gracious and that you are good. And I can trust you to oversee every detail of my life. And I'll do that. And so regardless of circumstances, faith stays fixated on the giver. And this is hard. Many of you know this from years of not getting what you want in one sense and of having to say, I trust you, God. In the midst of this, I look to you. And I say, help my unbelief. I'm depending on your goodness and your sovereignty and your graciousness, even if it's uncomfortable for me. And this is hard, but this is where faith happens. This is what Moses did. He continued to look to the future and to the giver of all good gifts. And so faith stays fixated on the giver, but faith that is fixated on the giver always demonstrates itself in action. And this is the last lesson. So faith is abnormal. It is powerful. It is fixated on the giver. And lastly, faith is demonstrated. Faith acts. Verse 28. This is something that's happened before. Look at, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? We've seen before, after a public experience, teaching, a miracle, the disciples come to Jesus and they, they, wanna, they want clarification. They want to ask him about it. And so here they wonder, what is the issue? Why could we not cast this demon out? Now, it it actually makes a lot of sense that they would ask this because if you remember back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had sent the disciples out 
two by two, and had given them authority over demons. And it says in verse 13, they had actually cast demons out of people. So they had had this experience in their lives with Jesus before. And so now they're, they're like, okay, what gives? We did this before and it's not happening this time. So what is the difference? Apparently, according to this, they had been focused on self rather than on Christ. And it demonstrated itself by a lack of prayer. Look at verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's one thing to claim to have faith. It's another thing to put that faith into action by prayer. And prayer is one of the clearest ways that we demonstrate our faith. What is prayer? Well, I think this man's cry in verse 24 is a prayer. And prayer is when we look to God and his character and ask him to do what only he can do. Prayer is a demonstration of faith. Another quote by this commentator. Prayer is the focusing and directing of faith in specific requests to God. Both faith and prayer testify that spiritual power is not in oneself but in God alone. And both wait in trust upon his promise to save. And so that seems to be the difference between chapter 6 for these disciples and chapter 9. In chapter 6, they had been depending on the authority of Christ, perhaps going to him in prayer. In chapter 9, that doesn't seem to be what they did. Instead, they were striking out on their own. They were not relying on him because they were not praying to him. Now, this is a great rebuke to me. This is a challenge to me. This, is, this hits me right where I am. There are so many times where I, I feel like in my day, I don't have time to pray. And it's largely because, yes, we're all busy. Okay, let's kind of get that out of the way. Everybody's busy. We know it. We all have things that we're trying to do. They're good things. But when I don't commit at least some time to prayer, it's because I think that what I'm trying to accomplish I can do, and I can do better without depending on God. It's because I'm largely focused on self and my own ability and my own authority. And I'm not recognizing my need for God because I'm not turned outward to him in faith, faith in his sovereignty, his control, and his goodness. I'm dependent on self, and so prayer seems to be a waste of time. Because if you're dependent on self, why would you turn outward to God and trust him and spend time quietly in a room by yourself with your eyes closed talking to someone you can't see? You do that when you have faith that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And so prayer is one of the ways that we demonstrate And we show that we actually have faith. We're aligning our feelings and our experience of reality with the truth of who he is and his goodness. So, these are the four lessons concerning faith. And these are necessary for us. I I think these are good lessons from this text for us to learn about our walk with Christ. It's abnormal to exercise faith. It's powerful It needs to be fixated on him, and faith is always demonstrated. And one of the primary ways it's demonstrated is through prayer. 
You cannot and I cannot walk this road of discipleship without faith in Jesus as a person. But let me circle back around and go to our beginning again and remind you of this. The warning that we started with. Don't let this discussion of faith turn inward on your own ability and on your own faith. Yesterday, I had the kids uh, up at the camping weekend with several other people from our church. And uh, one of the things that we got to do in the morning is we did a little bit of archery. And so we, uh, they give you the bows and the arrows and everything and give you a little class on it. And uh, it's very fun. It's challenging. Uh, it's a good time. But when you shoot an arrow at a target, you do not spend your time looking at the arrow in your hand as you're going to hit that target. You would not do very well if you spent all of your time gazing at the arrow and at the string or even where your hand is holding it. You wouldn't ever hit the target. And that's the exact same way it works with faith. Instead, you look past the arrow and you can see it in your peripheral vision. It's there. And you acknowledge it, and you have to have it in the right place, and you have to know what faith is, and that's why we talk about it this morning. But ultimately, you look at that target, and you gaze at that target, and you fix your eyes on that target. And then you can make a much better shot. None of them are that good. (laughs) But you can make a much better shot when you're focused on the target. And that's... That needs to be our baseline understanding of faith. And so that's my encouragement to us. Look to the one who is powerful and through whom all things are possible when we trust him. Just like this father did here. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for this passage. We're thankful for your work, your grace, your compassion. We're thankful for the teaching that we have this morning on faith. And we pray that you would would give us the gift of greater faith that we would learn to trust you and rely on you, and that that trust would demonstrate itself in everyday life, that in the midst of difficult circumstances, we would rely on your goodness and on your sovereignty, and that we would continually gaze on the person of Jesus Christ. We would be taken up in his beauty and his worth and his glory, and then we would be changed by that, and we would trust him more and more. Thank you for who you are, and it's In his name, in Christ's name, we pray these things. We ask for his help to continue to believe. Amen.